The most important question you will ever answer is, who is Jesus? And as we noted last week, everything depends on your answer to that question, your past, your present, and your future. We also noted that a lot of answers have been given to the question, who is Jesus? But only one is the right answer, the Christ of God. Jesus is the Messiah of promise. God come to earth in the form of man to save us from our sins. If we believe him to be anything less than that, he will be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And he will return someday in all his glory. We know that to be true not only because he told us so, but because some were actually given a preview of the parousia. They were made witnesses of the glory that we will all see when he comes again. We're continuing our study in Luke chapter 9, ready for verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, admittedly, that is a very difficult verse to interpret. And there is debate as to whether it goes with the verses that precede it or follow it. Those who divided the text into chapters and verses concluded Matthew 16 with this verse, making it appear that it goes with that which is in chapter 16. But it's the first verse of Mark 9, making it appear to go with what's to come. And it appears in the middle of chapter 9 in Luke's gospel. Apparently, they couldn't make up their mind where to put it. And for good reason. You know, Jesus has just spoken of his future coming in the glory of his Father with the angels. And Matthew has him saying that he will then recompense every man according to his deeds. There is little doubt that at that point he's talking about the second coming and judgment day. It's what he says next that causes the confusion. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record him saying the same thing with just slight variations. Rather than saying some of those standing there would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, Matthew says they won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Mark adds that they will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Basically, they're saying the same thing. But what exactly is Jesus talking about? At first glance, it appears that he's still talking about the second coming. But if that's the case, the liberals are right and Jesus was mistaken. Obviously, all of those standing there 2,000 years ago have tasted death. And he hasn't returned. So unless he was mistaken... He wasn't talking about the second coming right here. 
And further confirmation that he was not talking about the second coming is that he said some would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. After the second coming, there will be no more death. So he must have been saying something else. But what else might he have been referring to when he spoke of the kingdom of God coming with power? Well, actually, there have been several suggestions. Jesus' death and resurrection, as well as the surrounding events, were certainly demonstrations of the kingdom of God coming with power. As were the events on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit empowered the church and 3,000 came to Christ. And who would doubt that the spread of Christianity itself, as recorded in the book of Acts, was a demonstration of the kingdom coming with power. Indeed, all of these were demonstrations of the kingdom coming with power. And most of the apostles were privileged to witness them and witness them all before tasting death. But Jesus may have actually had something else in mind when he said some who were there with him would see the kingdom of God. He may have been indicating that some, but not all, of the disciples would be given a preview of the glory, power, and splendor of his kingdom before they died. And some of them did. In the very next event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. Peter speaks of that event in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance, made from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is here affirming that he and some others could speak with absolute confidence about the power and coming of Jesus because they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They didn't just hear about it. They saw it. They saw his power and coming and majesty on the holy mountain, most likely Mount Hermon, north of Galilee, near Caesarea Philippi. There they saw an amazing manifestation of his glory. Verses 28 to 31. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Some eight days after telling the disciples that some who were standing there would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom with power, Jesus took Peter, James, and John 
up on a high mountain to pray. Now, when Luke says it was some eight days, he was indicating it was about a week. Matthew and Mark get more specific, saying it was six days later. The point is that this event followed soon after what Jesus had just told them. Anyway, while he was praying, Luke says the appearance of Jesus' face became different. And Matthew makes it clear that Jesus didn't merely alter his expression while praying. His face shone like the sun. And not only did his face change, his clothing became white and gleaming. Matthew says his garments became as white as light. And Mark says they became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What was going on here? Both Matthew and Mark say he was transfigured. The Greek word they used is metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. Now, we use the term to refer to the changing of a caterpillar into a butterfly or a tadpole into a frog. And we realize that nothing can change into something else unless the change is simply revealing what it really is. An earthworm can't change into a butterfly. And a fish can't become a toad. What Jesus did on that mountain revealed what he really is. The outward change revealed his true inward nature. He was allowing three witnesses To see him as he really is, as he had been, and as he will be. They were being given a glimpse of the glory he had before coming to earth, taking on the form of a man. As well as the glory he will have when he returns in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Not only that. It was a demonstration of what we will one day be like. In Philippians 3.21, Paul speaks of a day when the body of our humble state will be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. I think that means that someday our faces will shine like the sun. And we will be clothed, Revelation tells us, in fine linen, white and clean. As apparently were Moses and Elijah when they appeared on the mountain with him in glorified bodies. Now, we aren't told why Moses and Elijah were chosen to be there. But most believe they were there representing the law and the prophets. We are told, however, what they were doing there. They were speaking with Jesus about his departure. The word is exodus. His exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were there to affirm what Jesus had told the disciples he was going to do. They were most likely assuring Jesus that the course he had set would indeed fulfill the law and all that the prophets had anticipated. 
And they were no doubt assuring the disciples that taking up a cross was the only way to glory. So how did the disciples respond to what they saw and heard on the mountaintop? What was their reaction to his glory? Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about, as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. As was apparently their habit, Disciples fell asleep while praying. <laughs> Let's not be too hard on them. I'm sure all of us who have attempted an extended time of prayer, especially while lying in bed, can relate to the disciples' weakness. But when they were fully awake, they saw the glory of the transfigured Christ. And they saw two men standing with him. And they knew who they were. How they identified Moses and Elijah, we aren't told. Perhaps they just intuitively knew who they were. You know, I imagine most of us have wondered what we will look like or how we will know each other in heaven. Will we look as we will appear at death or as we did in the prime of life when we were 60? And what about children? What about children who never reach adulthood? How will they appear? You know, we think about that because we wonder how we'll be able to identify each other in our glorified bodies. But we don't need to worry about it. God will make sure we do. And most likely, we will just know each other. As Peter, James, and John apparently knew Moses and Elijah. How long the disciples watched and listened, we aren't told. But as Moses and Elijah started to leave, Peter apparently tried to stop them. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's classic Peter, isn't it? Now, when he said he would build three tabernacles, I doubt he was thinking about places of worship, like the tabernacle in the wilderness. Most likely, he was thinking about the temporary shelters that Jews built during the Feast of Tabernacles. He was offering to build shelters for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. So they could all stay together longer on the mountaintop. But he didn't realize the implications of what he was saying. Even if he wasn't suggesting that Moses and Elijah should be worshipped like the Son of God, he was treating them as equals. And God would have none of that. Let's read on. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. As Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and began to envelop them. And this was no ordinary mountaintop cloud. As it began to overshadow them, the disciples were afraid. They had never seen a cloud like this one. While the text doesn't say, it was apparently what the Jews referred to as the Shekinah presence of God. The word itself, while not actually used in either the Old or New Testament, comes from a Hebrew word meaning to dwell. It was used to denote God's dwelling among his people. When God spoke to Moses from Mount Sinai, he came in a thick cloud accompanied by thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. It so frightened the Israelites that they didn't want to be around when God spoke. Out of the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration came a voice saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, Matthew tells us they fell on their faces and were much afraid. Mark says they were terrified. Matthew says Jesus then came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. He then adds, and lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. God made it very clear that Jesus is now the only one we are to listen to. Not Moses, not Elijah, and certainly not an angel or a false prophet. And no matter how overwhelming a spiritual experience might be, we must not allow it to overshadow who Jesus is or what He has told us to do in His Word. Peter had said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. But he didn't really understand what it meant. Now he had a better idea. He had been given a glimpse of Christ's glory, and he had actually heard the voice of God confirm it. He still had more to learn about Jesus. And he, James and John, remained silent about their experience on the mountain until after the resurrection. Only then would they understand what they had witnessed. And only then would they understand how what Christ had purposed to do in Jerusalem and what Moses and Elijah confirmed he must do would make possible what the psalmist longed for. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's made possible to us.